Volume Two, Section Eight, of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlotte Bronte, by Elizabeth Claycorn Gaskell, Volume Two, Section Eight. Chapter Five. Her life at Haworth was so unvaried that the postman's call was the event of her day. Yet she dreaded the great temptation of centering all her thoughts upon this one time, and losing her interest in the smaller hopes and employments of the remaining hours. Thus she conscientiously denied herself the pleasure of writing letters too frequently, because the answers, when she received them, took the flavor out of the rest of her life, or the disappointment when the replies did not arrive, lessened her energy for her home duties. The winter of this year in the north was hard and cold. It affected Miss Bronte's health less than usual, however, probably because the change and the medical advice she had taken in London had done her good. Probably also because her friend had come to pay her a visit, and enforced that attention to bodily symptoms which Miss Bronte was too apt to neglect, from a fear of becoming nervous herself about her own state and thus infecting her father but she could scarcely help feeling much depressed in spirits as the anniversary of her sister emily's death came round all the recollections connected with it were painful yet there were no outward events to call off her attention and prevent them from pressing hard upon her at this time as at many others i find her alluding in her letters to the solace which she found in the book sent her from cornhill what i sometimes ask could i do without them i have recourse to them as to friends they shorten and cheer many an hour that would be too long and too desolate otherwise even when my tired sight will not permit me to continue reading it is pleasant to see them on the shelf or on the table i am still very rich for my stock is far from exhausted some other friends have sent me books lately the perusal of Harriet Martineau's Eastern Life has afforded me great pleasure, and I have found a deep and interesting subject of study in Newman's work on the soul. Have you read this work? It is daring. It may be mistaken, but it is pure and elevated. Frode's Nemesis of Faith I did not like. I thought it morbid. Yet in its pages, too, are found sprinklings of truth. By this time, Airedale, Wharfdale, Calderdale, and Rimblesdale all knew the place of residence of Currer Bell. She compared herself to the ostrich hiding its head in the sand, and says that she still buries hers in the heath of Hayworth Moors. But the concealment is but self-delusion. Indeed it was, far and wide in the West Riding, had spread the intelligence that Currabell was no other than a daughter of the venerable clergyman of Haworth. The village itself caught up the excitement. Mr., having finished Jane Eyre, is now crying out for the other book. He is to have it next week. Mr. R. has finished Shirley. He is delighted with it. John's wife 
seriously thought him gone wrong in the head as she heard him giving vent to roars of laughter as he sat alone clapping and stamping on the floor he would read all the scenes about the curates aloud to papa martha came in yesterday puffing and blowing and much excited i've heard such news she began what about please ma'am you've been and written two books the grandest books that ever was seen my father has heard it at halifax and mr g t and mr g and mr m at bradford and they are going to have a meeting at the mechanics institute and to settle about ordering them hold your tongue martha and be off i fell into a cold sweat jane eyre will be read by j b by mrs t and b heaven help keep and deliver me the hayworth people have been making great fools of themselves about shirley they've taken it in an enthusiastic light when they got the volumes at the mechanics institute all the members wanted them they cast lots for the whole three and whoever got a volume was only allowed to keep it two days and was to be fined a shilling per diem for longer detention it would be mere nonsense and vanity to tell you what they say the tone of these extracts is thoroughly consonant with the spirit of yorkshire and lancashire people who try as long as they can to conceal their emotions of pleasure under a bantering exterior almost as if making fun of themselves miss brontë was extremely touched in the secret places of her warm heart by the way in which those who had known her from her childhood were proud and glad of her success all round about the news had spread strangers came from beyond burnley to see her as she went quietly and unconsciously into church and the sexton gained many a half-crown for pointing her out but there were drawbacks to this hearty and kindly appreciation which was so much more valuable than fame the january number of the edinburgh review had contained the article on shirley of which her correspondent mr lewis was the writer i have said that miss brontë was especially anxious to be criticised as a writer without relation to her sex as a woman whether right or wrong her feeling was strong on this point now in this review of shirley the heading of the first two pages ran thus mental equality of the sexes female literature and through the whole article the fact of the author's sex is never forgotten a few days after the review appeared mr lewis received the following note rather in the style of anne countess of pembroke dorset and montgomery to g h lewis esq i can be on my guard against my enemies but god deliver me from my friends cur bell in some explanatory notes on her letters to him with which mr lewis has favoured me he says seeing that she was unreasonable because angry i wrote to remonstrate with her on quarrelling with the severity or frankness of her review which certainly was dictated by real admiration and real friendship even under its objections the friend's voice could be heard the following letter is her reply to g h lewis esq january nineteenth eighteen fifty my dear sir 
I will tell you why I was so hurt by that review in the Edinburgh. Not because its criticism was keen, or its blame sometimes severe. Not because its praise was stinted, for indeed I think you give me quite as much praise as I deserve. But because after I had said earnestly that I wished critics would judge me as an author, not as a woman, you so roughly, I even thought so cruelly, handled the question of sex. I dare say you meant no harm, and perhaps you will not now be able to understand why I was so grieved at what you will probably deem such a trifle. But grieved I was, and indignant too. There was a passage or two which you did quite wrong to write. However, I will not bear malice against you for it. I know what your nature is. It is not a bad or unkind one, though you would often jar terribly on some feelings with whose recoil and quiver you could not possibly sympathize. I imagine you are both enthusiastic and implacable, as you are at once sagacious and careless. You know much and discover much, but you are in such a hurry to tell it all, you never give yourself time to think how your reckless eloquence may affect others. And, what is more, if you knew how it did affect them, you would not much care. However, I shake hands with you. You have excellent points. You can be generous. I still feel angry, and I think I do well to be angry, but it is the anger one experiences for rough play rather than for foul play. I am yours, with a certain respect, and more chagrin. Cur bell. As Mr. Lewis says, the tone of this letter is cavalier, but I thank him for having allowed me to publish what is so characteristic of one phase of Miss Bronte's mind. Her health, too, was suffering at this time. I don't know what heaviness of spirit has beset me of late, she writes, in pathetic words, wrung out of the sadness of her heart. Made my faculties dull, made rest weariness, and occupation burdensome. Now and then the silence of the house, the solitude of the room, has pressed on me with a weight I found it difficult to bear, and recollection has not failed to be as alert, poignant, obtrusive, as other feelings were languid. I attribute this state of things partly to the weather. Quicksilver invariably falls low in storms and high winds, and I have ere this been warned of approaching disturbance in the atmosphere by a sense of bodily weakness and deep heavy mental sadness such as some would call presentment presentment indeed it is but not at all supernatural i cannot help feeling something of the excitement of expectation till the post hour comes and when day after day it brings nothing i get low this is a stupid, disgraceful, unmeaning state of things. I feel bitterly vexed at my own dependence and folly, but it is so bad for the mind to be quite alone, and to have none with whom to talk over little crosses and disappointments, and to laugh them away. If I could write, I dare say I should be better, but I cannot write a line. However, by God's help, I will contend against this folly. I had rather a foolish letter the other day from 
Some things in it nettled me, especially an unnecessarily earnest assurance that, in spite of all I had done in the writing line, I still retained a place in her esteem. My answer took strong and high ground at once. I said I had been troubled by no doubts on the subject, that I neither did her nor myself the injustice to suppose there was anything in what I had written to incur. THE JUST FORFEITURE OF ESTEEM A few days since, a little incident happened which curiously touched me. Papa put into my hands a little packet of letters and papers, telling me that they were Mama's, and that I might read them. I did read them, in a frame of mind I cannot describe. The papers were yellow with time. All having been written before I was born, it was strange now to peruse, for the first time, the records of a mind whence mine own sprang, and most strange, and at once sad and sweet, to find that mind of a truly fine, pure, and elevated order. They were written to Papa before they were married. There is a rectitude, a refinement, a constancy, a modesty, a sense, a gentleness about them indescribable. I wish that she had lived, and that I had known her. All through this month of February I have had a crushing time of it. I could not escape from or rise above certain most mournful recollections. The last days, the sufferings, the remembered words, most sorrowful to me, of those who, faith assures me, are now happy. At evening and bedtime such thoughts would haunt me bringing a weary heartache the reader may remember the strange prophetic vision which dictated a few words written on the occasion of the death of a pupil of hers in january eighteen forty wherever i seek for her now in this world she cannot be found no more than a flower or a leaf which withered twenty years ago a bereavement of this kind gives one a glimpse of the feeling those must have who have seen all drop around them, friend after friend, and are left to end their pilgrimage alone. Even in persons of naturally robust health, and with no recordarsi di tempo felice nella miseria, to wear, with slow dropping but perpetual pain, upon their spirits, their nerves and appetite will give way in solitude. How much more must it have been so with Miss Bronte, delicate and frail in constitution, tried by much anxiety and sorrow in early life, and now left to face her life alone? Owing to Mr. Bronte's great age and long-formed habits of solitary occupation when in the house, his daughter was left to herself for the greater part of the day. Ever since his serious attacks of illness, he had dined alone. A portion of her dinner, regulated by strict attention to the diet most suitable for him, being taken in his room by herself. After dinner she read to him for an hour or so, as his sight was too weak to allow of his reading long to himself. He was out of doors among his parishioners for a good part of each day, often for a longer time than his strength would permit. Yet he always liked to go alone and consequently her affectionate care could be no check upon the length of his walks to the more distant hamlets which were in his cure. He would come back occasionally, utterly fatigued, 
and be obliged to go to bed, questioning himself sadly as to where all his former strength of body had gone to. His strength of will was the same as ever. That which he resolved to do he did, at whatever cost of weariness. But his daughter was all the more anxious from seeing him, so, regardless of himself and his health. The hours of retiring for the night had always been early in the parsonage. Now family pairs were at eight o'clock, directly after which Mr. Bronte and old Tabby went to bed, and Martha was not long in following. But Charlotte could not have slept if she had gone, could not have rested on her desolate couch. She stopped up. It was very tempting, late and later, striving to beguile the lonely night with some employment, till her weak eyes failed to read or to sew, and could only weep in solitude over the dead that were not. No one on earth can even imagine what those hours were to her. All the grim superstitions of the North had been implanted in her during her childhood by the servants, who believed in them. They recurred to her now, with no shrinking from the spirits of the dead, but with such an intense longing once more to stand face to face with the souls of her sisters, and no one but she could have felt. It seemed as if the very strength of her yearning should have compelled them to appear. On windy nights, cries and sobs and wailings seemed to go round the house, as of the dearly beloved striving to force their way to her. Someone conversing with her once objected, in my presence, to that part of Jane Eyre, in which she hears Rochester's voice crying out to her in a great crisis of her life, he being many, many miles distant at the time. I do not know what incident was in Miss Bronte's recollection when she replied, in a low voice, drawing in her breath, But it is a true thing. It really happened. The reader, who has even faintly pictured to himself her life at this time, the solitary days, the waking, watching nights, may imagine to what a sensitive pitch her nerves were strung, and how such a state was sure to affect her health. It was no bad thing for her that about this time various people began to go over to Hayworth, curious to see the scenery described in Shirley, if a sympathy with the writer, of a more generous kind than to be called mere curiosity, did not make them wish to know whether they could not in some way serve or cheer one who had suffered so deeply. Among this number were Sir James and Lady Kay Shuttleworth. Their house lies over the crest of the moors, which rise above Hayworth, at about a dozen miles' distance as the crow flies, though much further by the road. But according to the acceptation of the word, in that uninhabited district, they were neighbors, if they so willed it. Accordingly, Sir James and his wife drove over one morning, at the beginning of March, to call upon Miss Bronte and her father. Before taking leave, they pressed her to visit them at Gawthorpe Hall, their residence, on the borders of East Lancashire. After some hesitation, and at the urgency of her father, who was extremely anxious to procure for her any change of scene in society that was offered, she consented to go. 
On the whole, she enjoyed her visit very much, in spite of her shyness and the difficulty she always experienced in meeting the advances of those strangers, whose kindness she did not feel herself in a position to repay. She took great pleasure in the quiet drives to old ruins and old halls, situated among older hills and woods, the dialogues by the old fireside in the antique oak-panelled drawing-room, while they suited him, did not too much oppress and exhaust me. The house, too, is much to my taste, near three centuries old, grey, stately, and picturesque. On the whole, now that the visit is over, I do not regret having paid it. The worst of it is that there is now some menace hanging over my head of an invitation to go to them in London during the season. This, which would be a great enjoyment to some people, is a perfect terror to me. I should highly prize the advantages to be gained in an extended range of observation, but I tremble at the thought of the price I must necessarily pay in mental distress and physical wear and terror. On the same day on which she wrote the above, she sent the following letter to Mr. Smith. March 16, 1850 I returned Mr. H.'s note, after reading it carefully. I tried very hard to understand all he says about art, but, to speak truth, my efforts were crowned with incomplete success. There is a certain jargon in use amongst critics on this point, through which it is physically and morally impossible to me to see daylight. One thing, however, I see plainly enough and that is Mr. Currer-Bell needs improvement, and ought to strive after it. And this, D.V., he honestly intends to do, taking his time, however, and following as his guides, nature, and truth. If these lead to what the critics call art, it is all very well. But if not, that grand desideratum has no chance of being run after or caught. The puzzle is that while the people of the South object to my delineation of northern life and manners, the people of Yorkshire and Yankshire approve. They say it is precisely the contrast of rough nature with highly artificial cultivation which forms one of their main characteristics. Such, or something very similar, has been the observation made to me lately. Whilst I have been from home, by members of some of the ancient East Lancashire families, whose mansions lie on the hilly borderland between the two counties. The question arises, whether do the London critics or old northern squires understand the matter best? Any promise you require respecting the books shall be willingly given, provided only I am allowed the Jesuit's principle of a mental reservation, giving license to forget and promise whenever oblivion shall appear expedient. The last two or three numbers of Pendennis will not, I dare say, be generally thought sufficiently exciting, yet I like them. Though the story lingers, for me, the interest does not flag. Here and there we feel that the pen has been guided by a tired hand, that the mind of the writer has been somewhat chafed and depressed by his recent illness, or by some other cause. But Thackeray still proves himself greater when he is weary than other writers are when they are fresh. 
the public of course will have no compassion for his fatigue and make no allowance for the ebb of inspiration but some true-hearted readers here and there while grieving that such a man should be obliged to write when he is not in the mood will wonder that under such circumstances he should write so well the parcel of books will come i doubt not at such time as it shall suit the good pleasure of the railway officials to send it on or rather to yield it up to the repeated and humble solicitations of hayworth carriers till when i wait in all reasonable patience and resignation looking with docility to that model of active self-helpfulness punch friendly offers the women of england in his unprotected female the books lent her by her publishers were as i have before said a great solace and pleasure to her there was much interest in opening the cornhill parcel but there was pain too for as she untied the cords and took out the volumes one by one she could scarcely fail to be reminded of those who once on similar occasions looked on so eagerly i miss familiar voices commenting mirthfully and pleasantly the room seems very still very empty but yet there is consolation in remembering that papa will take pleasure in some of the books happiness quite unshared can scarcely be called happiness it has no taste she goes on to make remarks upon the kind of book sent i wonder how you can choose so well on no account would i forestall the choice i am sure any selection i might make for myself would be less satisfactory than the selection others so kindly and judiciously make for me besides if i knew all that was coming it would be comparatively flat i would much rather not know amongst the especially welcome works are southey's life the women of france hazlitt's essays emerson's representative men but it seems invidious to particularize when all are good i took up a second small book scott's suggestions on female education that too i read and with unalloyed pleasure it is very good justly thought and clearly and felicitously expressed the girls of this generation have great advantages it seems to me that they receive much encouragement in the acquisition of knowledge and the cultivation of their minds in these days women may be thoughtful and well-read without being universally stigmatized as blues and pedants men begin to approve and aid instead of ridiculing or checking them in their efforts to be wise i must say that for my own part whenever i have been so happy as to share the conversation of a really intellectual man my feeling has been not that the little i knew was accounted a superfluity and impertinence but that i did not know enough to satisfy just expectation i have always to explain in me you must not look for great attainments what seems to you the result of reading and study is chiefly spontaneous and intuitive against the teaching of some even clever men one instinctively revolts they may possess attainments they may boast varied knowledge of life and of the world but if of the finer perceptions of the more delicate phases of feeling they be destitute and incapable 
of what avail is the rest believe me while hints well worth consideration may come from unpretending sources from minds not highly cultured but naturally fine and delicate from hearts kindly feeling and unenvious learned dictums delivered with pomp and sound may be perfectly empty stupid and contemptible no man ever yet by aid of greek climbed parnassus or taught others to climb it i enclose for your perusal a scrap of paper which came into my hands without the knowledge of the writer he is a poor working man of this village a thoughtful reading feeling being whose mind is too keen for his frame and wears it out i have not spoken to him about thrice in my life for he is a dissenter and has rarely come in my way the document is a sort of record of his feelings after the perusal of jane eyre it is artless and earnest genuine and generous you must return it to me for i value it more than testimonies from higher sources he said miss brontë if she knew he had written it would scorn him but indeed miss brontë does not scorn him she only grieves that a mind of which this is the emanation should be kept crushed by the leaden hand of poverty by the trials of uncertain health and the claims of a large family as to the times as you say the acrimony of its critique has proved in some measure its own antidote to have been more effective it should have been juster i think it has had little weight up here in the north it may be that annoying remarks if made are not suffered to reach my ear but certainly while i have heard little condemnatory of of shirley more than once have i been deeply moved by manifestations of even enthusiastic approbation i deem it unwise to dwell much on these matters but for once i must permit myself to remark that the generous pride many of the yorkshire people have taken in the matter has been such as to awake and claim my gratitude especially since it has afforded a source of reviving pleasure to my father in his old age the very curates poor fellows show no resentment each characteristically finds solace for his own wounds in in crowing over his brethren mr dunn was at first a little disturbed for a week or two he was in disquietude but he is now soothed down only yesterday i had the pleasure of making him a comfortable cup of tea and seeing him sip it with revived complacency it is a curious fact that since he read shirley he has come to the house oftener than ever and been remarkably meek and assiduous to please some people's natures are veritable enigmas i quite expected to have had one good scene at least with him but as yet nothing of the sort has occurred End of section 8